Turn with me in your Bibles to Titus again this week. I do have the text there for you on your outline. We have begun a study through this pastoral epistle. It's called that because it is written by the Apostle Paul to Titus, one of his protégés. Timothy was another uh, that he left in Ephesus to develop that church to help it grow. And then Titus is left in Crete to do the same thing. Now, there's a distinct difference between Ephesus and Crete in that Ephesus being more in the inland had more mature believers earlier in its life. Uh, He gives Timothy much of the same advice, the same counsel, the same direction that he gives Titus. But it becomes clear that to Titus, he's speaking uh, in terms of a a more immature, uh, a younger congregation. Uh, You could compare 1 Timothy with Titus very closely, especially as it relates to the text we are studying today on elders. I will focus primarily, though, in Titus because there's so much going back and forth that we would have to do. It would be difficult to follow. But please do, on your own, check 1 Timothy 3, especially as it relates directly with what Titus is being told in this wonderful epistle from Paul to Titus. Hear now God's word as I read 1 the first are verses 5 through 9, having already looked at the purpose of Paul's ministry, now we come to what he does to follow up that purpose of serving the faith of the elect and the growth of the elect. Hear God's word, verses 5 through 9 of Titus, chapter 1. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your holy word. We thank you for the direction it gives us. We thank you for the relevancy of this passage to every church's life. I pray that we would seek to pattern our lives, our ministry, after what your word reveals. Lord, I pray for a redeemer. I pray that we would seek after a faithful eldership, supporting our elders, recognizing those who are to be elders, all for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. I'm going to ask Todd if you would just, sorry to pinpoint you, turn down these monitors. They're, just, they're really echoing in my ear more than this is echoing in my ear. So I need, that's better. Thank you. Brothers and sisters, we have come to an important and sober passage. In fact, any time I ever read any passage on elders, I immediately start crafting my resignation letter. (laughs) I'm teasing, but it is a humbling thing when you read this. In fact, what is so encouraging to me being at Redeemer is that when I read this list, I think of our elders. I don't think of myself, but I think of our elders. And of nine elders, if I'm ranked number nine which I would rank myself that place as it relates to these things. I am so grateful that God has brought up these men in this church 
And so I can come with confidence preaching a text like this. I can't imagine being in a place, and I know that it has to be done on a regular basis, where you're preaching this knowing that the eldership you have doesn't match up with this. That is just not a problem for us, and I know the guys may be squirming a bit, uh, but this is the truth of what the Lord has brought about here, and it's uh, something that I praise God for, but also recognize how badly the church at large needs again to obey and focus on what it is God has given us about government in the church and how it is it ought to be governed. There are many ways in which churches are governed, and God has been able to redeem all sorts of methods, but it seems clear uh, that the New Testament model was to appoint a plurality of godly men to lead the church of Christ. This seems to be throughout the New Testament era, and it's not until the second century before you see one-man pastorates or bishops being over large groups of churches. The first 150 years after uh, the New Testament was penned, we saw the development and the multiplication of the church through the multiplicity of elders being appointed at various churches. Remember that the ministry of the church, as we learned in the introduction, is about the calling of God's elect to faith in Christ. For the elect to then grow in knowledge, and as they grow in knowledge, live godly lives, and then live more confidently, and ultimately the glory of God comes when the people of God are the people of God in that culture. And so, what's the first thing Paul does when trying to set in order the church to accomplish this goal? The very first thing is he leaves Titus and Crete to appoint elders. Not to start a program, not to start doing this or that or the other, but appoint elders. Titus, the most important thing you will do before the church can be about its business, to be about its mission, is to appoint godly elders. It's got to start there. Look at verse 5. This is what it says. This is why I left you in Crete. This is why I left you is the purpose statement in the first four verses. For the faith of the elect. So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Literally, it means to straighten out what that which was unfinished. I mentioned that in Ephesus, Timothy becomes the pastor. There are more mature believers there. Probably some former Jewish elders had become the Christian elders, and Timothy had a little more to work with. Whereas Titus, there were some things that needed straightening out. That's the literal meaning of putting into order, what remained into order. So his number one task was to complete the work that had begun, to straighten out what, is, what was unfinished, to appoint elders. And it's true. Today, there are many forms of church government, but please recognize that God has chosen and revealed to us by his word the office of elder for the shepherding care of the flock in order to continue the progress or the process of spiritual growth. That is the coming to faith, the growing, the living out what you come to know, and the confidence and hope that comes from being certain. The very definition of putting what into order included appointing elders. Now, I want to make several points from this text that are important for us to recognize, starting first with this uh, revelation that comes in the first verse already, that there must be a plurality of elders in each church, meaning there ought to be more than one elder presiding over, pastoring, shepherding an individual church. We see this throughout the New Testament. In fact, there is no example of one elder ever other than when John refers to himself as an elder. That's the only singular form we have in the New Testament. Look at verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, plural, in every town as I directed you. Now, this is the pattern. Let me just give you a few other examples in the New Testament about the plurality of elders being the norm for each church. Acts 14, chapter 21. And when they had preached, the apostles, that is, 
the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. The norm for planting a healthy church would be to appoint elders, plurality. Later in the book of Acts, verse 17 of the 20th chapter, now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So when Paul gets to this town, he calls for the elders, knowing there's more than one there at this duly constituted church. Writing to Timothy, chapter 5, verse 17, let the elders, plural, who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and in teaching. And by the way, that's why we see a division in the eldership of those who rule primarily and those who teach primarily. They both rule and they both teach, but some have more emphasis on teaching than the others. That's why we have ruling and teaching elders, but it's one office, the elders. Hebrews 11, verse 7. Remember your leaders, plural, who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. Not imitate his faith, but their faith, the eldership as a whole. James 5, verse 14. If anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The Bible is very clear in all these references, and there are more, that there is always a plurality of leaders in a given church. There may be times and epochs in the life of a church where there's only one elder, but that's not the norm and that's not the ideal. The ideal is to have a plurality of shepherds presiding over a flock. How does this play out in church history? Well, the first 150 years after the church's uh, new life, you might say, at Pentecost, you have the Shepherd of Hermas, a wonderful little reed that was written in the middle of the second century, and it says, read it to the city, Rome, that is, along with the elders that preside over the church there. So that's around 150 The first epistle of Clement, who lived before uh, the start of the second century. Clement was one of the early elders at Rome. He writes a letter to the leaders of the church called bishops and deacons or elders. He He interlaces these terms, speaking of at least a plurality that existed there in the church. Polycarp, a disciple of John, the apostle, said in his letter, it was addressed to the elders. The didache, which is the teachings of the apostles, very close to the time of Christ even, appoint for yourself overseers and deacons, it says, as a command in that extra biblical writing. The point being is that a plurality of elders is always the norm. And you can see why this is wise. You know that it says in the Proverbs that in the multitude of counselors there is wisdom. Uh, There's a wisdom that comes from a group of godly people coming together, and there's an acknowledgement that in that godly group there is still sin residing in each of those people, and any one person at any given time could sin or err. But when you have a group checking one another with the word of God, the opportunity for error is much, much lessened by having such a wonderful team to work together. Proverbs says in several places uh, that there is wisdom as it relates to to an abundance of counselors where there is victory in Proverbs 24, 6. 
Brian Schwertley says in speaking of of the plurality of uh, elders and why it's important, the following. Because of a believer's remaining sin and finite knowledge, one man alone cannot be entrusted with such an important task. There is great wisdom, Schwertley writes, in a plurality of godly men. Having a plurality of mature godly men helps protect the church against sinful egotism, arbitrariness, and dictatorial tendencies among the leadership. With a plurality of elders, a great deal of knowledge and wisdom can be brought to bear upon a situation. What one man may not know may be known by another. Thus, with a plurality of elders, errors in judgment and wrong interpretations and applications of Scripture can often be discerned and avoided. Further, a plurality of elders brings together the varied personal experiences of a number of men. What may be new and baffling to one elder may have already been dealt with extensively by another. While any system of church government can be abused by sinful men, the Presbyterian or Reformed system of rule by a plurality of elders is the least liable to abuse because of its biblical checks and balances. So plurality of elders is clearly the norm in Scripture, but also please notice these terms, elder, overseer, shepherd, pastor. They are all meant bishop. They are all meant to be the same office. Look with me at verse 5 of our text. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Speaking in the same vein now in verse 6, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. And it continues on. Same office. One word is presbyteros, which is elder, from which we get our Presbyterian name, ruled by elders. And the other word is episkopos, translated sometimes as bishop or overseer. So overseer, bishop, pastor, elder, they are the same office, one office, same function. Where this is most evident actually happens in the book of Acts. We see it here, but in the book of Acts, chapter 20, listen to how the two terms are used interchangeably. This causes great confusion today because people think of bishops and elders as separate, when in effect, biblically, they're the same office. One indicates the role of the office, one indicates kind of the dignity of the office. To be an elder, it means to be, there's a dignity to the office, uh, whereas to be a, a bishop or an overseer, that's the function, the ruling function of the office. But listen to, in, to what uh, is recorded in Acts chapter 20, verse 17 and following. Uh, I've read it earlier, but listen to it with new ears. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders, presbyteros, of the church to come to him. And when they come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Then in verse 28, be careful, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. He's still talking to the same group of elders. In which the Holy Spirit has made you episkopos, has made you overseer, has made you bishop. So he's talking to the same group of elders to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So the office of elder and the office of overseer are the same thing. I want you to notice something else from our text in in Titus, that the appointment of the elders is based on the recognition of God-given qualifications. Someone isn't made an elder, they're recognized as an elder, and they're recognized by the people of the church as such. Uh, Notice in verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then he goes on to list how you'll know if that person should be an elder. Now he's telling Titus, Titus is not an apostle. He's an assistant to the apostles. 
Now, when the church began afresh, after Jesus rises again from the dead and ascends into heaven, the choosing of the original elders was for the apostles to do. We know this in Acts 14, the verses that I read earlier, when they had appointed elders, they being the apostles, for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord. But eventually the apostles, as the church grew, used assistants to appoint elders. Timothy's one such assistant and Titus is another. That's why we have it here that Titus is told to do this. But Timothy is also told, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Say, don't do it quickly. Take time. You got to, here's a list of things you got to check to make sure this guy should be an elder. So Timothy, an assistant now, is being used to appoint elders. But it goes without saying, for us to know if a person fits this description, which we're about to study, that people must attest to it. It's not just Titus walking into Crete and saying, hmm, he looks like an elder. No, it's talking with people, living with people, recognizing who are the leaders, and are those leaders biblically qualified, and it's a process that happens. And people recognize it, and they ultimately, the people of the church, have to say, yes, that's a person that should be an elder. And by the way, we don't vote a lot in a Presbyterian church, you probably recognize. But guess what your most important vote ever will be? For who your elders are. Because that's your calling, to recognize these traits in a man who is put before you as elder. It is never to be a hurried decision. We are better off with fewer elders who are qualified than a horde of elders who are unqualified. Far better off. Do not be hasty in laying on of hands, it says in Timothy. Is, is brutal as the process is sometimes, and our brother Brian is going through it now for ordination, at the end of it, you so much more appreciate what you've just come through than just simply doing some things at the church and being made an elder immediately. You recognize the gravity of the office more when there's a process for determining whether you actually qualify by God's grace. Now, let's consider the personal qualifications for an elder as they are laid out uh, in this text before us. Again, 1 Timothy 3 parallels this beautifully, so do check that portion of Scripture as well when you have opportunity. You'll see how wonderfully it meshes as you would expect. But first it says, and it says it twice in our text, that a man who is to be an elder must be above reproach. Verse 6, if anyone is above reproach. Uh, if anyone simply means, that's going to narrow the field because there's a lot of people out there that cannot be said to be above reproach. Verse 7 says it again, for an overseer is God's steward that is someone who takes care of that which is God's, must be above reproach. And it simply means they're blameless. Not that they're faultless, like they're sinless, but rather that there's no legitimate outstanding accusation that could be brought and bring some kind of uh, disparagement to the name of Christ while they're in office. It doesn't mean that they have uh, a sinless past, but it means that those accounts have been closed and rightly reconciled. It's, there's no unsettled matter of offense lingering out there. An elder's reputation in the public square is just as unsullied as it is in the church. That's what it means to be above reproach, and everything starts from there. Secondly, and very simply, an elder is to be a man. Look at verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers. If Paul had intended for women to be in the office of elder, he would have said it very explicitly here. Instead, in this verse and in 1 Timothy and in other portions in 1 Peter, it refers directly to a man. It doesn't mean any man. It means a qualified man. That's what it says in the text. In fact, uh, designating qualified men for eldership is in no way a statement of inequality between the sexes. It is more a statement of God's divine design for order. In fact, I will be the first to admit there are many women 
who could do a much better job than I can do if it's just based on that. I married one. Every guy I know and the eldership married one also. It's not an issue of inequality. It's an issue of order that God has given us. And it all works together as we see this order and live submissively to it. Now, speaking to this, because I know what I've just said isn't popular at all today, I've studied this thoroughly, and I can only find one woman who is placed in official office of the church, and it's Deborah in the Old Testament, the book of Judges. It's a stretch to say Phoebe in Romans 12 was an ordained deacon in the church. But even if she was, deacon is different than elder. Uh, but if you take the case of Deborah as a case study, and I've heard it used as such, recognize why she was appointed. She was appointed because there was not a faithful man in Israel. In fact, the problem today is faithlessness in men. That's the problem. Women are not the problem. In many cases, it's not their fault. There was no faithful man, so they had to step up. Much of the situation we find ourselves, much of the confusion we find ourselves today in is because of faithless male leadership, unqualified male leadership, domineering and even abusive male leadership. Women in various segments of the church have risen up like Deborah, but this is not the healthy norm. This isn't the way it ought to be. God has called men to step up to this role, to lay their life down for the flock, not abuse the flock, not lord it over the flock, but lay their life down for the flock. That's what a real elder does. In a healthy church, there are strong, qualified, humbled male leaders, elders, who lead as Christ-led, willing to lay their life down. We see also that an elder must be a faithful husband. This is the verse of much discussion. What does it mean, the husband of one wife? Uh, Literally, in the Greek, it says a man of one woman or a one-woman man. This means that a brother who is an elder must be biblically married and faithful to one woman. Sometimes this is used to say that a man has to be married to be an elder. Paul wouldn't be an elder then. I don't think that's what is referred to here. Sometimes this is used to say that a remarried man cannot be an elder, someone who's been divorced or their spouse has died. Now that's a more complex question that demands analysis because it can speak to judgment. But in and of itself, if all things are biblical and it is searched at, that's not what this text is saying either. It's not disqualifying out of hand such a one. Rather, what it is saying positively, and so far we've had these positive descriptions, that this is not a polygamous man which was common in that day, nor an unfaithful man, clearly devoted to his wife. He is not mistreating his wife by flirting with or treating other women in a way that is inappropriate. That is one who should not be an elder, a faithful husband. But also, verse 6 says, leading a submissive household. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, this phrase, children are believers, the word for believers here is the same word for faithful. And I believe that's actually a better translation, that their children are faithful or obedient to the household faith. No elder, no parent here could ever make their child trust Christ. That's the the work of the Holy Spirit. And all things being normal, he does that in Christian homes. But what the elder is held accountable to is that their child is in submission to that household's missional statement. Whether they personally are born again or not is for God to work. But they must be faithful and not rebellious against what it is that elder is doing. And that will have to do with their behavior and their actions and activities. That's what it refers to. 
talks about debauchery, which is kind of a wild giving over to passions, an unbridledness. They're out of control. There's no control in the house. The kid does whatever he wants. Insubordination. That is, he thumbs his nose at his father, or she thumbs her nose at her father. That would disqualify a man if the child was in that state of rebellion in their household. And this is clearly while the child is in the household of the elder. This elder is not continually responsible for one who now has their own household up into the years. One great story that I encourage you all uh, to check out is the story of John Piper, who's a pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church. His, one of his sons, Abraham, for the longest time did not profess faith in Christ, and he's an elder in his church. And he tells the heartbreaking story of discussion after discussion he had with his son Abraham. And his son Abraham said, Dad, I hear what you're saying. I understand it's true for you, but I just, it's just not me. And he lived his whole teenage years in that household. Well, John Piper's the elder of that church, one of the elders of the church, in that state of outspoken disbelief. But his son was very respectful of his father's position and was even supportive of the family mission. And by God's grace, eventually, in his early college years, he came to a personal profession of faith in Christ and writes about this whole dynamic beautifully. But I think it illustrates how it doesn't disqualify a man because of the issue his son is dealing with personally. The issue has to do with that household and how orderly it is as it relates to the mission of that elder to be the flock of a church. Also, we can see in the text that an elder is not to be arrogant He's a steward of God's church. So he must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant in verse 7 or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy. Let's look at all of those together. First, arrogance. That is, they cannot be self-willed, self-pleased. The kind of guy that no matter what the conversation starts out, it ends with a focus on him. Obstinate in his own opinion, meaning not that he's opinionated, but that his opinion will never change no matter what. All conversations feature himself. That's not someone who ought to be an elder. Not quick-tempered. That is, they're not soon angry or hothead or they have a short fuse. James 1.19 and following, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Not quick-tempered. Doesn't fly off the handle immediately. Not someone who gets drunk, verse 7. A drunkard literally means someone who sits along his wine for a long time. Someone who's out of control, who is given over to this substance, will be unable to be a faithful steward of God's house. Elders must much navigate this area with great wisdom. But the issue is drunkenness, clearly here, that must be avoided as it is sin. And a drunkard should not be given stewardship over the household of God. Not violent, verse 7. That is a striker, one who is quick with their fist. I played hockey for a long time, uh, one of the great sports on earth that is little known here in Kansas City. But we used to play against a guy who our whole, our whole effort was to simply bump him once because he would drop his gloves immediately and want to fight whoever bumped him. I mean, this guy ruined it for his team over and over and over again. He looked at him cross-eyed and he was ready to fight. And everybody and every team knew this guy. And that was everyone's plan was just to go get that guy. Well, that's exactly what Satan does with a guy who's a fighter in the leadership position. He sends someone to get him to fight because fighting never leads to the righteousness of God. It never leads to unity. It only leads to disunity, only leads to hardship and travail. Cannot be violent. 
Cannot be materialistic in verse 7. Greedy for gain is what is referred to here. Not one who is in love with money and things. Not one who has his stock portfolio on his mind more than the things of Christ. One who is extremely insecure about his securities should not be an elder in the church. Not one who is unethical in his business practices. Being greedy for gain, cutting corners. Being known out there as someone who's a cheater. That person ought not be an elder. Not one who is a poor steward either. Hospitable, verse 8 says, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Hospitable simply means a lover of strangers, that is, he'll take in those he doesn't know that well into his home. Maintains an open household. His stuff is other people, for other people's benefit and growth. He willingly opens his home. This is very important in the first century church. When the church becomes persecuted and people were literally put out on the street, hospitality was practiced by Christians to bring people in out of the elements, literally. But for today, it should be no different, that we would open up our homes. It's amazing to me how big a homes we have today, how much stuff we have, and how few people we have in them. Uh, If you go to Mexico, for instance, they all want you to come in their house, and it's a house no bigger than this chancel area. But they don't care because they want people in. That's hospitality. I've experienced it in basically every country but this one. This one, we build as big a house as we can, and the rooms stay empty most of the time. Part of the reason why elders in our church are required to have home fellowship group is it's a test that they recognize that their homes are to be open to the flock of God that's been given to their care. A lover of good in verse 8 simply means focused on the good. God created things of life that gives, that forces us, it evokes us to give praise to God because he's good. Looks to build up. Is a lover of goodness. Self-control, this goes in line again uh, with discipline in verse 8. Sober-minded, mindful and deliberate about reacting, exercises power over passions. Uh, Prudent, I love to watch our elders when they discern things, how uh, mature they are about not reacting right away. It teaches me so much as I watch them receive news that I've had for a while and I share to them, I wonder how they'll react. I know how I reacted and instead, they calmly hear what's been said and they, they don't freak out about it. They recognize that God is in control, and they're controlled over the rea- reaction and response. This leads into the other description, upright, uh, which simply means righteous or just. They're a fair person. An elder should be someone who could be a judge of a court case and, and be trusted by everyone there because they know that that person's unbiased, and they will make a choice that is right and just. They're trustworthy. Holy here is interesting because it's a different word than is normally used. It means devout or pious, that is, their life is pleasing to God. They're unpolluted as unpolluted can be in this sinful existence. Discipline in verse 8 is another reference to a more deliberate form of self-control. They have a godly pattern of living. That is, that person has built-in safeguards to combat sin. It's not that they stand high and mighty and say, I just won't sin. No, they recognize their sinfulness and they set up patterns to avoid that sin, whatever it may be for them. That's discipline. Uh, Built-in mechanisms or practices for spiritual growth, uh, personal time with the Lord, studying his word, reading his word beyond just the teaching responsibilities they have to do. Their times of prayer, their times of worship. These are disciplined periods and points in their life, a deliberateness about their life and their ministry. Well, brothers and sisters, you see this is a long list and you can understand why any of us who are elders uh, shudder a bit as we read it. But as I praise God for seeing this lived out in the lives of elders, I recognize it's God who gives this ability, not any man on his own. 
But the text closes in verse 9 with important further qualifications for an elder. Because you'll notice that nothing that has been read so far would be untrue of any believer, would it? I mean, God calls all believers to be these things. But something specific to elders happens in verse 9, doctrinal qualifications for elders. Look what it says. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. First of all, he must be stable doctrinally. That's what it means, hold firm to the trustworthy word. That is, he holds fast to sound doctrine. He holds tightly, firmly committed, not constantly wavering with every new fad that comes out. This connotes an ability to withstand doctrinal attack because they're holding firm to steadfast faith to steadfast teaching. To be an elder, a man must be committed to the body, the trustworthy word as taught. Not a new believer usually, not wishy-washy. It's usually an older believer who's weathered a few doctrinal storms in his life. Stable doctrinally true, but also verse 9 is equally as important. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. The trustworthy word Think of Titus now he's receiving. What's the trustworthy word to Titus? That would be the teachings of the prophets and the apostles. What is that for us? That's the scriptures. That's the Bible. The trustworthy word as taught. Taught by who? The apostles. We have it complete for us in the scriptures. So a man who is an elder must be committed to the Bible. In fact, if he is not committed to the Bible or gives you some weasel wording about the Bible, run as far away as you can because that person is a false shepherd. They will not be able to help you, not in eternity, without the true word of God. The man must be committed to the Bible. And let me just say, it doesn't mean that he agrees with everything you think about the Bible, but that he believes the Bible is inspired by God, kept free from error, is authoritative for our lives, and sufficient for everything we need. That, that's the baseline understanding. Your interpretation may be different. doesn't mean he's a false teacher. But you both agree that this is God's word, and we must live under it committed to the Bible. He knows the Bible is also implied in verse 9, holds firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. First Timothy says apt to teach. So he has to know the scriptures. He has to be able to teach the scriptures because he knows and understands them. He must be a model for growing in grace and knowledge. He's not arrived doctrinally, ultimately, but he's on that path that models it for the rest of the congregation. The elders must also be active teachers in the church, both formally and informally, by teaching formal settings, but also by the life they live before the people. Verse 9 also says that he is to be able to exhort and to refute, able to give instruction in the second part of verse 9, in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That is, they are to give instruction in sound doctrine, that's exhortation, that's encouragement, that's teaching, that's modeling, but also to rebuke those who contradict, that is, to correct, to confront falsity, to rebuke it when it arises. That's what a shepherd does, is stave off threats from within, stop the sheep from fighting, and threats from without when wolves try to come in. That's the job of the elder. Brothers and sisters, I want this just to sink into us as we hear it and have heard it. The church has been established for the glory of God, and the way God's glory comes is when his elect are brought to faith in Christ, 
when they grow in knowledge, when that knowledge translates to godliness, when godliness in their life gives them confidence that God is working and it starts to have effect outside these walls and throughout our culture. And the number one way that starts is by godly leadership appointed rightly according to the scriptures. That's the starting point for this process to happen, the ministry of godly elders in Christ's church. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for this wonderful portion of your word. It's daunting, though, when I read it. I recognize, Lord, just how unworthy any of us who are called elders really are, apart from the grace of your grace in our lives. Lord, I thank you for the accountability that comes from a plurality of elders to hold one another accountable to your word that is here written. Pray that you encourage the brothers here who are elders. Encourage the brethren here to support their elders in prayer and by submission to their authority, recognizing that these brothers see this as a special calling, stewardship of God, to guard the souls of your elect. And Lord, I pray that you would protect our church but also continue to grow our church with godly leaders. And I pray, Father, that we would not see this as too simple of instructions, but rather exactly what, in many ways, the church at large is missing, a simple dependence upon your clear revelation to us. Lord, thank you for what you have done for us in guiding us, but ultimately thank you for paying for our sins through the blood of your Son. I pray that we would bring you glory because of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn with me in your insert there to a wonderful uh, hymn that's like a prayer to the Lord, Jesus with thy church abide. Let's stand together and sing the first four verses as we prepare for communion. seated. We sang in this song that is a prayer that we would be one in doctrine, one in truth, and one in charity. A great symbol of our unity in the faith is this table, the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Is it not one cup that we bless? As the cup of Christ's suffering for us, his life poured out for us. This cup unites us. It declares to the world that we are united in Christ Jesus. And so I'd invite anyone and everyone who are trusting in Christ alone for their salvation to come to this table, this table of unity in Christ Jesus. But because we are expressing this unity in this sacrament, we must also examine ourselves to examine if we are united to Christ and if the unity between brothers and sisters is really there. If there's some outstanding sin between you and another brother or sister, go be made right and then come to the table. Examine ourselves to see if we are trusting in Christ alone or if we're trusting in something of ourselves, something of our heritage, something of our church membership even. But this table is for sinners, sinners who need Jesus and the forgiveness of sins. Our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He also took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. It's shed for the remission of the sins of many. And as often as we drink this cup and eat this bread, we proclaim to the world the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this sacrament that is all about Christ. We thank you that it not only reminds us of his death, but it also feeds us and nourishes us. Lord, thank you for your real spiritual presence among us. And so we ask that you'd minister to us through this sacrament. Lord, set apart these elements from their common use to the sacred use for which you intend them this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.